Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Second John is a short little book, just a single chapter. It is part of the debated work of John. There are those who believe that the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation were all authored by the same person and by one of the disciples, an apostle named John. There are others who believe they may, that those books may have been written by disciples, members of the church that John started and led. Um, or by several different authors. I happen to believe they were all written by the same person, and it's okay with me if it was the apostle or not the apostle, but I think there are enough similarities to believe that they were. Second and third John are generally accepted as having the same author, someone who refers to himself as the elder. Um, there are also lots of similarities between first and second John, so they're kind of largely accepted. So if second and third share the same author and first and second share the same author, then first, second, and third must share the same author. Now, there's also another debate around this little book of second John. There are those who believe that second John may have been written before first John. The false teachers still have access to the church in, in second John, but they have already been ousted or ceased to have their access to them in 1 John. This one is also written to a specific church. So if 2 John was written first, it would mean that 1 John is a circular letter written to prevent the same issue in other churches of the area. If they were written in the order that they are presented and numbered to us, if 1 John was first, then this is a letter that is a follow-up to a single church that may have still been struggling and there. Either of those is possible. I don't have a strong opinion as to which one it may be. I'm, I'm okay with the unfolding in the way it is presented to us. Um, this book alerts readers to the false teachers that are denying the humanity of Jesus. And he's going to contrast the teaching of Christ with the teaching of these false teachers, who he calls deceivers. He also says that those who open their homes and provide a base from which these false teachers operate are as gui- are guilty of helping spread their false message. So who you associate with, who you allow to be, to appear to be endorsed by you makes a difference. The letter was probably written during the last decade of the false of the first century, somewhere between A.D. 90 and 100. Let's jump in to the first verse. We have several people addressed in here. We have the elder. This would refer to somebody mature in the faith, a respected leader, not necessarily someone of older age, but also perhaps older chronologically as well, probably the Apostle John. He, he writes to the elect lady. This is probably a congregation that's generally accepted. It's a term of respect 
uh, meaning mistress, not mistress in the way of like an illicit affair, but mistress is the feminine form of lord. Instead of lord and lady, it's lord and mistress, um, the, the person in charge there. And then it also talks about her children. These would be the church members. So the apostle writes to a church and the church's members. We're going to use the word love a good bit in this book, and it's going to be the Greek word agape, which is that unconditional love, love that is backed up by actions and not driven by feelings, a commitment to the greater good, to the best good of the other person, a love that um, exhibits itself in wanting the best for the other. And in terms of this book and in terms of what this author says, Jesus says, love equals obey. If you love me, you'll do what I tell you to do. There are six references to Jesus' command to love between First and Second John. They're in First John chapter three, verses eleven and twenty-three, chapter four, verses seven, eleven, and twelve, and then here in Second John, verse five. There are also five uses of the word truth in the first four verses and four uses of the word love in the first six verses. So those are clearly themes. This author wants us to understand the truth about Jesus Christ and wants us to behave with love toward everyone. In verse 4, we see that some of the congregation is being faithful, but not all of them. Um, as we move into a section that includes verses 5 through 11, verse 6 tells us that walking means living all the time. Walking in the ways of Jesus means consistently living in the truth of what Jesus taught us and behaving as Jesus would want us to. We must walk in truth and love, not either one, but both. This becomes a great debate for us. Um, if we hold firmly to the truth, we can be mean and hard. If we're all loving, then we just accept anything. But there's a balance. The two work together. And there we must walk in both truth and love. Verse 5 affirms that this is not a new commandment. This is one they've heard from the start. Jesus gave this commandment in John, John's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 35. Um, Jesus also defines his disciples' love for him in terms of their obedience. He does this also in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 10. In verse 7, the author speaks of deceivers. The deceiving message that they're um, perpetuating is denying the humanity of Jesus, denying either the humanity of Jesus or the divinity of Jesus is denying Jesus. Jesus was who Jesus was. He was 100% human and 100% God. He was God come in flesh. That can be very hard for us to wrap our mind around, but it is the truth. It is a foundational belief to our faith that Jesus was not just a human being, um, but he also was human. He came as a human being. We have this word antichrist that many of us associate with end time stories, with um, the apocalypse kind of thing. But antichrist is a spirit of opposition to Jesus the Christ. That word antichrist is used four times in First and Second John. It's used in First John chapter two, verse eighteen and twenty-two, in chapter four, verse three, and then here in Second John, verse seven. So it, the spirit opposing 
Jesus Christ is already active and at work in the world. In verse 8, it says, um, talks about what we have worked for. Um, some of your translations may say what you have worked for. The better translation, the better rendering would be we. It is a plural that includes both the author and the audience. Believing these false teachers will separate you from what we're working toward is basically what he's saying. Don't let yourself get separated from Christ and separated from the future we're working toward because you've been deceived by false teachings. Verse 9, there is a reference to this goes beyond the teaching of Christ. Some of your translations may say run ahead. They run ahead. Um, what they're doing is using the real teaching of Jesus as a foundation. So they're they're using truth that you can believe and trust as a foundation, but then they're building upon it. And what they build, the conclusions to which they work, are false. It's quite possible because we know that mystery cults were very popular in that Greek and Roman culture in which the early church was operating. There was the idea that Everybody couldn't be told the full truth. You had to make these journeys, reach a certain level of commitment and maturity in a belief system in order to be revealed more information. There was secret knowledge that had to be earned. All of the apostles opposed the idea that following Jesus Christ involves secret knowledge you must earn. Everything about Jesus can be known right up front. You may have a hard time understanding it, but it isn't because we're hiding it from you. It, um, so this is not a secret mystery cult around Jesus. So these false teachers may be claiming that there is advanced knowledge that you need to reach. And they're, so they're basing it on Jesus, but coming to a bad conclusion. And the author says, don't let them use your home as their base of operation. In that in that world, there would have been some very expected things about hospitality. So you would have received people into your home and allowed them to stay with you. You would have hosted meals that would have allowed your guests to speak with people who came. And so they're saying, don't. Don't host a person because it looks like you're endorsing them. You may just be trying to be kind, but if they are off course and cannot be gotten back on to a good course, then don't appear to be aligned with them in any way. Now, this is not suggesting that we cannot show kindness and concern for those who have erroneous views, but we must not encourage them. We must not appear to endorse them, and we must not help them spread their false messages. To use kind of a modern way of talking about it, we talk about platforming people. This would be having a convention and letting them be a guest speaker, letting them be a headliner, having their name be associated with you, letting them preach at your church. So this is not a matter of interpretation. This is not a matter of how we view a secondary principle. This is an attack on a central affirmation of faith that Jesus was fully human and that he was also the Son of God and divine. In verses 12 and 13, 
The elder hopes to come for a visit so that he can say more. There's a lot more to say. Doesn't want to have to write it all down. It's hard to find the right words. Make yourself clear. We can sit down, see each other's faces, watch each other's body language, facial expressions, tone and inflection, and have a better conversation. So he wants to come check on them. He hopes everything will be going well, um, but they'll come and they'll all find their way forward together. And he wants it to be a joyful visit and not a sorrowful one. He closes with greetings from another church, perhaps the one that planted them or the one that he leads or just the one where he is currently ministering at the time. I'm here and we send you greetings to everybody there. Um, Let me talk a little bit more about hospitality in the New Testament times. Um, Hospitality was not something that was given just to family and friends. Hospitality was also something that was given to strangers. Now, that may sound very odd to us, the idea of taking into our home and allowing people to stay with us that we don't even know. But if you didn't take people into your home, if you didn't extend hospitality, they were left like camping in the town square or staying at a a shady inn. There weren't a lot of those, but sometimes there were public houses where people could stay. And they were at great danger of being mistreated, um, treated in actual quite inhumane ways. We have seen this in some of the Old Testament stories of the gentleman who goes after his concubine um, and of the tale of um, the two angels who go to remove Lot and his family from Sodom and Gomorrah. There were dangers associated with not being taken in to a safe home. So there was that reciprocity. I'll let you stay here and trust that you're a good person, and you'll trust that I'm a good person by coming into my home. As I mentioned, inns were of doubtful reputation. Travelers would want to stay with friends, relatives, acquaintances, or hospitable strangers. And often you came with letters of recommendation to someone like, oh, I have a friend in that town. Let me write a letter of recommendation. You can take it to them and they'll let you stay with them. The one who's taking them in not only provides them housing and food, but vouches for them with the community and protects them from any dangers in the community. Otherwise, the visitors would have had no rights, no protection, no standing under local law, and they would be incredibly vulnerable and undervalued. If you have this mindset, you can look back at all the rules that were put in place for the nation of Israel about how they were to treat foreigners among them. They were to treat them just like they would their own country people. They were not to be like the other cultures around them and treat strangers in inhumane ways. The stranger, however, was then obligated to speak well of the one who had taken them in and was showing them hospitality. Um, If they were not treated well, they were expected to report that as well to their own community. But to refuse to receive a letter of recommendation was to dishonor the person who wrote the letter. It was a danger to ending that friendship if you did not accept that recommendation and take that person in. So this 
being dishonored would demand a response or a consequence in order to save face. So it might be a refusal to show hospitality from that other community or when it was recommended by the household that refused. So hospitality was a little bit of a complicated kind of thing. And we see that coming into play with what is happening here. People are wanting to be hospitable, but you can't be hospitable if you're going to look like you're being associated with wrong. There. Let's move on to the letter of Third John. All of the author issues that we've had with First and Second John also apply to Third John. It also dates to about the same time, sometime during the last in, last decade of the first century. This, however, is one of the few New Testament letters that is addressed to an individual rather than a church or a group. This one is addressed to Gaius. And the closest analogy for this letter that we have would be the letter to Philemon. Gaius is a very common name, so there's no reason that this has to be the one that is mentioned in Acts 19.29, Acts 24, um, 1 Corinthians 1.14, or Romans 16.23. Gaius is most likely a congregational leader, um, someone prominent or very faithful in that congregation. Demetrius and Gaius are held forward as examples to follow, whereas Diotrephes is held as an example not to follow. He serves himself, he undermines the elders' influence and authority, and he's denying those missionaries' hospitality. More than likely, this letter was delivered by Demetrius to Gaius, Gaius, and it is also possible that Demetrius is the one who was refused hospitality previously. Let's jump in. In verse 1, Gaius is called beloved. Um, all of the words love and any form included beloved are a form of the Greek word agape, that unconditional love. He is loved in truth, um, meaning he is faithful to the truth of Jesus. In verse 2, the elder is very confident of Gaius's spiritual health. He may be a friend of the elder or someone he has met along the way. As I said, probably a respected leader who worked and served alongside this elder. It's also quite possible that the elder led Gaius um, to faith in Jesus Christ. There is the verb go well used here in this verse. It's the Greek verb euodo. Um, which I am probably butchering the pronunciation. I don't pronounce my Greek well. In other places where it says here, I want it to go well with you. It will go well with you if you do this. In other places, that same verb is translated prosper, like in Romans 1.10 and 1 Corinthians 6.2. So it will prosper. you will prosper. It will go well with your soul. Your soul will prosper. I want it to go well for you. In verse 3, reports have come to the elder about what has happened. It does not appear that this letter was prompted by a letter from Gaius, but rather from reports about Gaius that have come to the elder. In verse 4, as I said, Gaius may be a convert of the elder, or this may be a general expression of pastoral care. In verse 5, the word beloved is used again. He has received strangers into his home on multiple occasions. We're not told how many, but on more than one, certainly. In verse 6, he says, you will do well 
to do this, um, we should hear that phrase as being a polite request. In other words, please, um, you would do well to do this. Please do this. In verses 7 and 8, if we look closely, we see three reasons to send on these missionaries with help. The first is that they are true missionaries, teaching truth, the truth about Jesus Christ. In verse 2, they don't take support from those they're seeking to reach. Um, This is consistent with Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. When they go to minister to a people to try to convert them to faith in Jesus Christ, they're not also saying, so feed us and put us up while we do it. They would use missionary funds from the churches to support them while they try to reach the people. And the third one is this is how we, those who don't go, those of us who are not missionaries, this is how we participate in and share in the work of those who do. It's one of the ways that we can help fulfill the great commission, the command to go and make disciples is we support those who actually do the going while we do the sharing at home. In verses 9 through 12, we're introduced here to Diotrephes. He's another leader, but he is the opposite of Gaius. He stands as a warning against confusing personal ambition with zeal for the cause. He refuses legitimate authority over him, which we see in the elder. So in verse 10, when the elder comes, um, he'll have to exercise authority over him. He'll have to show him who's really in charge, and it's going to be a conflict, and there's a real possibility that it will be a little bit ugly. The elder would rather that we all just cooperate. Let's all do the right thing, and then it doesn't matter really who's in charge or who has authority over who. Um, But if we can't all do that, then he will have to assert his authority to do what's needed to keep everybody on the right course. Um, The translation that says, I will call attention to this when I come, it's really not strong enough to indicate what is happening here. It's going to get ugly, <laughs> and he might have to be rude if if um, Diotrephes doesn't adjust his attitude. The matter involves one of personal dishonor. Diotrephes is gossiping about the elder and about the, the church that the elder is at. He's also failing to exhibit Christian hospitable behavior. That would have included cultural hospitality, but particularly among those who are following Christ. They receive and help one another. There's all these teachings about giving from what we have for the benefit of all, and now you won't even receive someone who comes with a legitimate letter of recommendation from a legitimate other church. So there are four ways that Diotrephes is misbehaving. One, he's gossiping about the elder in his church, spreading things that are not true. Two, he's refusing to receive orthodox missionaries who come on the recommendation of the elder. Third, he's preventing others from receiving them. And fourth, he's ejecting from the church those who who defy him on this matter. So not only will Diotrephes not receive and show hospitality to the missionaries, but he's going after anyone else who does and actually ousting them from the church. 
it's very possible that Demetrius is the one who was refused hospitality and that Gaius is one who has been ejected from the church because of it. There. It's also possible that Diotrephes is being overly zealous. We already have in these letters a warning about not associating with people who are not teaching truth. So maybe Diotrephes has simply decided if it's possible that the teachers may be false, let's just not receive any of them. We're just not going to do any of that. So we don't have to worry about who's false or not. We'll handle it in, in-house. We'll all do the teaching. We'll follow. Um, we don't need anybody from the outside to do that. But he's been too zealous. He's gone too far. And he's trying to exercise too much authority over others. Now, some have speculated that this Demetrius is the one who is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture in Colossians 4.14 2 Timothy 4.10, Philemon verse 24, and Acts 19 verse 24. Um, That Demetrius is a silversmith from either Ephesus or Demas. That's pure conjecture. It may or may not be the same person. It could be, but it doesn't have to be. Um, There are those because there's also a Gaius mentioned in Acts 19 who want to see connection between these two names. But those were not unusual name, so it doesn't necessarily have to be, but maybe it is. Um, Demetrius, however, we see is affirmed by everyone, the elder says in verse 11, including the elder and by what Gaius has observed in his personal interactions with him. Demetrius is true, and so he should have been extended hospitality. In verse 13, the elder says again that he's going to come Um, They'll meet face-to-face, and what's interesting is that phrase face-to-face in the original Greek literally means mouth-to-mouth, not like kissing or mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, but where we can see each other's mouths. Um, We'll do this in person. In verse 15, he uses the word friends. The friends here greet the friends there. And it's quite possible that the believers referred to themselves in this way as friends. And this we see in this letter, both in verse 5 and here in verse 15. In the book of James, chapter 2, verse 23, believers are called friends of God. Um, Abraham was believe, Abraham believed God. That was accounted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. That's interesting to me because the Quakers use that term. Their name Quaker actually comes from um, ridicule, much in the same way that the word Christian was first used as a, a disparaging name for believers who followed Christ in Antioch. They were called Little Christ or Christians because they wanted to be just like Jesus. Uh, the Methodist the term Methodist was actually originally an insult. They were so methodical about their daily ways of following Christ that they were called Methodist, Methodists. And so here, Quakers was a derisive term because they would often shake when they felt the presence of God. They call themselves the Society of Friends, and that's based on these verses here in Third John and that phrase in James 2. And so this letter, with some greetings and wishes of peace, the elder concludes this letter 
to Gaius or Gaius and to his friends and to the church as they figure out what the line is between being friendly, kind, and hospitable to those with which we disagree, and where is the line between that and the fact that we don't want to appear to be endorsing their wrong teachings. Um, one of the few letters written to an individual, and that takes us through the little letters of Second and Third John. Thank you. 